This episode is sponsored by Kendo UI. Kendo UI allows you to build better apps faster. They have a comprehensive library ranging from data grids and charts to buttons and sliders. Plus, you can use their components as plain JavaScript as well as in Angular, React, and Vue. They have a large collection of customizable popular themes like Bootstrap and Material. Go check them out at javascriptjabber.com slash kendoui. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Chris Ferdinandi. Hey, everyone. Coming in from Boston. Corey House. Hello from Kansas City. I'm tempted to ask you to remind people who you are. Amy Knight. Hey, hey, from Nashville. Joe Eames. Hey, everybody. Uh, I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest, and that's Nicholas Zakas. Hey, everybody. All right. Well, um, and, and Corey, I'm excited to have you back. I'm not, I, I am giving you a bad time, though. <laughs> <laughs> Glad to be back, Chuck. Thanks for having me. Yeah. All right. Well, Nicholas, do you want to remind people who you are? We haven't had you on for a little while. Yeah, I think it's actually been about five years since I was on last. And I can't actually remember what we talked about that time. But a couple of years later, you invited me on and I unfortunately wasn't able to come to talk about ESLint. Um, but we were able to schedule a bunch of the maintainers to join you instead. Uh, and that's probably what people know me for most at this point is I created ESLint, um, kind of kicked that off. And now it's being maintained by a great group of people. Well, that's good to hear. We brought you on to talk about the origin of ESLint. But before we do that, maybe we should get an introduction or a little bit of an explanation of what it is for people who aren't using something like it. Yeah. So ESLint is a linter for JavaScript. So it falls in the same category as JSLint, which was created by Doug Crockford, uh, and a later fork called JSHint, uh, which was started by Anton Kovalyov. hope I'm saying that right, Anton. Uh, And the purpose of ESLint, just like JSLint and JSHint, was really to help you find problems with your code. Uh, It has grown quite a bit since I first started it. Um, And now it can help you not only with finding errors and potential bugs, uh, but also work with uh, enforcing style guides and even auto-formatting your code. Yeah, it's handy to get that feedback and to keep things consistent. So where did it come from? Uh, Well, the idea first popped into my head when I was working at Box. And I had just joined, um, I think I was maybe there a month or two and still getting used to the systems and the tools and the processes that we had uh, when one of my teammates was working on a bug that had come in. Uh, At the time, we were still supporting IE7, uh, and the report was basically that nothing was working at all. Uh, And after investigating, uh, my teammate found that somebody had written some JavaScript code that was using the native XML HTTP request object to make an Ajax request. And that wasn't the best practice of the company at the time. Um, We had a utility that we were supposed to be using instead, but for whatever reason, uh, the person who wrote that code was unaware of that. Uh, And so when using this native XML HTTP request object in IE7, Specifically, there was a little bit uh, of uh, a little bit of trickiness to it in that it really was just a wrapper around the ActiveX implementation that we were all using in IE6. And the company uh, who reported the bug had a policy on their network that ActiveX was disabled uh, for everybody using IE. And that would then disable XML HTTP request and nothing would work. Uh, So the solution was to use the library that we had that had a workaround for those situations. uh, And also to add uh, a line in what at the time we called a linter, but was really just a regular expression matcher that would run on the build for all JavaScript files. And it was basically just a text file uh, that had each line was one regular expression. And if you tried to run your code 
through the build process, that check would run and it would run the regular expression against your JavaScript code. Uh, and it would fail if any of the regular expressions matched. So a line for XML HTTP request was added into that text file. And when I was looking at that, uh, I thought, huh, you know, I'm really not comfortable using regular expressions to evaluate code like this because you have no sense of the context that the code exists in. Now, you could be matching inside of a string. You could be matching a comment. Um, it's really not a good way to be checking your code for problems. Uh, and that kind of started me on this journey of trying to figure out a better way to lint code. So, Nicholas, with, with that in mind, why did you choose to create a product versus using some other options that were available or were JSLint and JSHint not on the market at this time? So both JSLint and JSHint were around. Uh, and I think by that time, JSHint was pretty much the de facto tool that everybody was using. Uh, and my first thought was, I wonder if JSHint can help with this problem. Because um, when I had worked at Yahoo, uh, my team had actually created a custom version of JSLint to flag problems that we wanted to be aware of that maybe were not generally applicable to people outside of our team. Uh, and I went back to look at JS Hint for that purpose too uh, and saw on their roadmap was actually a plan to implement uh, a plugin system where you could create your own rules and immediately thought, that's great. That's exactly what we need. And why try to build something new if a tool I'm already using is going to be able to do the same thing. Right, so right. I didn't see anything on GitHub uh, about the status of that. So I emailed Anton directly and asked him you know, what the plan was. Uh, and he said, unfortunately, it looked like they weren't going to be getting to that. And at that point in time, I actually kind of apologized to him and said, well, I hope you won't take offense if I try to make something for that purpose because I really need it. Uh, and I think it would be useful to other people too. And uh, it's not that I don't appreciate JS Hint. It just seems like what I need isn't on the roadmap. Mm -hmm. Okay, that makes sense. So I didn't, um, yeah, my, my history with these only dates back to around the time they were customizable. So it uh, actually didn't occur to me that there was a time where that maybe wasn't the case. I know it's really interesting to me to hear you say how they were basing it off of regular expressions because as I understand it now, like it builds up this abstract syntax tree and that's how you can kind of like create your own rules. So it's interesting to me to hear how that has evolved. Yeah, it was um, the interesting thing about the tool set at Box was that there was a PHP linter as part of the build as well. And I'm not 100% sure, but I think one of the engineers at Box actually wrote it. And it would parse the PHP into an abstract, an abstract syntax tree and then poke at the AST to find problems with it. And that struck me as something that was much more rational yes, um, I don't than using regular expressions. Yes, I don't want to be writing regular expressions for uh, that. <laughs> Well, I was going to ask, in your opinion, why do you think that ESLint, I would say, is kind of the standard now? Well, I think a large amount of it has to do with how easy it is to plug things in. Uh, and from the first days of ESLint, that was always my goal, was just I wanted to make sure that the tool itself didn't get boxed in in any way. Um, because in going back over the history, uh, we had JSLint, which basically Doug Crockford reigned over, and any change that you wanted to get into there, he was the sole arbiter of whether or not it would land. Uh, and that was ultimately what led to the fork in JSHint, which was much more community-driven. Uh, but even so... Uh, 
when there's a small team maintaining a tool that a lot of people are using, it's virtually impossible to keep up with all of the requests. And you end up with, you know, instead of the benevolent dictator for life, you end up with a benevolent team of people for life. And people start to complain, say, well, they're not listening. And really, it's not that they're not listening. There just isn't enough developer bandwidth, especially for people who are maintaining it in their spare time, uh, to be able to respond and potentially implement all of the suggestions. And I saw that early on, not only from just following JS Hint, and I think I probably contributed two or three pull requests to that. But there was another project that I worked on with Nicole Sullivan called CSS Lint, uh, which I think was the first linter for CSS. And which I we ran into that way. problem there where the, the, well, thank you, um, where the, just the amount of feedback and the amount of suggestions and you know, CSS language continuing to develop, it was just really hard to keep up with all of that um, just coming in to just the two of us. And so with ESLint, I really wanted to um, flip the script and make it so that there was no gatekeeper to the functionality you wanted to ESLint. If you wanted something, then you should be able to write a plugin uh, and then at runtime, just tell ESLint to use that plugin. So you wouldn't have to wait for me or somebody else on the team to give you permission to do what you wanted to do uh, with ESLint. And because it was so pluggable, that meant that when things like React came along, we didn't have to do anything to support React except make sure that you could specify a different parser for your code. Uh, and that was one of the first requests um, that we got to add configuration beyond writing your own rules. Uh, somebody at Facebook, and, and my memory is failing me here, I apologize for that, just asked, you know, we have this custom parser to be able to parse JSX syntax. And if you would just expose a way to let us plug in that parser, uh, then we could use ESLint on React code. And that was pretty easy to do because we were using Esprima at the time, uh, the JavaScript parser that Aria Hidea had created. Uh, so it wasn't even something that was built into ESLint. And so uh, we were able to expose the parser property in the configuration. Facebook could use their custom parser uh, and off they went. And because that was the only linter that was capable of parsing uh, the JSX code, um, it became a tool that just be became part of the React toolkit in part of what Facebook started recommending to other people using React. And I don't think I need to go over what happened with uh, React becoming the most popular uh, JavaScript development framework out there. So Nicholas, one thing that I found really interesting about ESLint is how it can also be an educational tool for a development team. And uh, by that, I mean, especially when ES6 came out, the ability to add in some linting rules that would tell people, hey, as a team, we've decided not to use var. We're going to use let or const instead. Uh, and that's just one example among many. I mean, drawing attention to people uh, and opportunities for these features. When you created ESLint, did you see that also as an opportunity to use it as an education tool for features that people might not have yet been aware of in the language? Yeah, absolutely. Because um, I know one of the problems that uh, I've had in my career was how do you start to introduce newer practices, newer syntax, newer ways of doing things into an organization that is probably running at capacity? That there's not a lot of teams that I've been on where the company has said, okay, all of you can go off and for a week go upgrade your skills, take some courses, uh, or we'll bring instructors on site. Uh, that just hasn't happened a lot in my career. And as a result of that, uh, I would usually find when I joined a new team 
that there were some, you know, sometimes small, sometimes large problems in the code base that were just really hard to get resolved because if, when one person recognizes this, there's not always a great way within a team or within a company uh, to be able to share that information and certainly not in a non-confrontational way. Right? I mean, if you're a tech lead and you want to rule with an iron fist and you go around saying we shouldn't be doing that anymore, well, that's one way to do it. Um, but your tenure in that job is probably not going to be very long because people will feel like you're picking on you. And uh -huh. I've always believed that it's better to get angry at a tool than it is to get angry at a person. Uh, and uh, I think Doug Crockford introduced us to that idea when he warned us that JS Lint could hurt your feelings. Uh, and that is actually better than your teammate hurting your feelings. You can have a common enemy in the tool, but you don't want to have enemies within your team. And so I really did see it as like, okay, as ES6 was coming along, how can we start to nudge people? Um, and not from the start, I, my personal view of ESLint was that it should not have its own opinion, um, but it should be able to make recommendations. And uh, a lot of the early rules were just simply that, the recommendations of like, hey, did you know that there actually is a less error prone way to do what you're doing? Uh, and when ES6 came along, hey, did you know that uh, you're actually not changing the value of this variable? So you could change it to a const if you wanted to. Uh, and I think that the full power of ESLint as a learning tool really became apparent um, not only as EX6 started being implemented, uh, but also I think as the React plugin uh, for ESLint um, started becoming more popular, where we had people in the React community being able to codify best practices for React uh, and also use that as a way uh, to introduce people to new React features as they became available. So it was definitely part of my vision for ESLint early on. Uh, and I think that it's one of those things about the ESLint community that I enjoy the most is both by people submitting rules to the project itself and also creating plugins like the React plugin. Um, how ESLint has been able to teach people about not just JavaScript syntax itself, but also about uh, other languages and frameworks and stuff like that. Great answer. Okay, so I wasn't the only one that thought of that. So and I'm not surprised to hear it either. So do you feel, though, that there is a best practice for getting a team started on ESLint? I mean, what is your recommendation for a team that's not doing linting today? Do you, do you get the whole team in a room and talk through the, the litany of options? Or do you have somebody go in and take their best guess and turn a few things on and see who screams? What, what have you seen work or some things that uh, people should maybe avoid? So the thing that I always recommend for a team that isn't doing any JavaScript linting at all is first and foremost, get ESLint into your system with zero rules turned on uh, because you will at least then be getting syntax checking and it introduces that mindset into your development process that there is something we can do to automatically check JavaScript before it goes through our build pipeline and out into production. So just getting syntax checking as part of your build, uh, you'll actually see a pretty significant uh, improvement in the number of bugs that are making it out to production. After that, I recommend using the default, uh, what we call the ESLint recommended configuration. And that has all of the things that we've found are most likely errors. Uh, and by errors, I mean runtime errors uh, as opposed to syntax errors. Um, and you can go through as a team with those. Uh, and sometimes it's easier just to enable uh, that check on new commits so you don't go through an entire code base with that check. 
Um, but using those ESLint recommended uh, rules will immediately clean up a lot of problems that you might not have even recognized in your code. Uh, and if you find any of the rules are either, um, there are too many problems found with those rules, uh, I usually recommend that instead of turning them off, you just set the severity to warning instead of error. Um, and that was something that I designed from the start because we ran into this problem uh, at Box when we tried to introduce JS Hint, that at first we turned on as many rules as we could, um, and it was driving people crazy because we were blocking the build, and they didn't feel like, uh, you know, when I'm committing this file that I didn't even write, I'm just making a change to it, why should I be responsible for fixing everything in it before I can get my change in? Uh, and so the idea with the different severity levels in ESLint was, you know, you don't want to turn off rules so that people aren't aware that there's a problem. Uh, so the warning level will let you have the rule on so people are aware of the problem, but it won't block the build. It doesn't cause the uh, exit code to be non-zero. Uh, and doing that alone will give you a lot of benefit for ESLint. Uh, and I think the next step and what you're probably hinting at is how do you decide as a team on the rules that are maybe not for finding errors, but are more uh, stylistic in nature? So do we use semicolons? Do we not use semicolons? Do we use tabs? Do we use four spaces? Uh, stuff like that. So to figure that out, I am a very big proponent of finding an existing style guide and just adopting it wholesale. Um, ESLint at this point has, I think, over 200 rules and probably more than half or close to half uh, are stylistic in nature. And if you want a good way to lose an entire day of developer time, you put a bunch of developers in a room and ask them to go through that list uh, and figure out what everybody will agree to. It's really not worth it. So <laughs> find something that you can get most people to agree with off the bat uh, and just agree to stick with it even if it's not your favorite format. Because at the end of the day, uh, and I've actually had to mediate several of these conversations, um, there is no right or wrong when it comes to uh, stylistic preferences. Uh, it really is just getting everybody to do the same thing. And I think it was Crockford who said in one of his talks about JS Lint um, that, you know, whether you drive on the right side of the road or the left side of the road doesn't really matter so long as everybody else is doing the same thing. Uh, and I believe that about style guides too. Like it's, um, it, for some reason, it tends to get very uh, emotional and heated. Um, I, I think I understand a little bit about why that is. Uh, but I think the best thing for the team as a whole is, look, you just find a guide that you're willing to live with. Uh, ESLint itself, if you run it with the dash dash init uh, command, will give you a list of popular style guides uh, and just pick one and get everybody to agree that hey, no matter what your personal preference is, we've all just decided this is the thing we're going to do because as a team, uh, that's the one thing that we can all agree on. Uh, and of course, as you go forward, you can tweak the rules uh, if you find things are really not working very well for your team. Um, but if you can at least start with a baseline that's already defined, I think you'll end up with a happier team going forward. I love the CLI tool. I was just setting up a project this weekend and use that. And the fact that I can either go through the option where I pick one of the style guides that are already out there and pretty popular or, you know, ask me a bunch of questions about what I like, and then it's automatically going to create my config for me. Um, that was super helpful. But my question for you, I'm kind of just curious as the person who created this, if you had to pick like 
two or three rules that you um, are super helpful. Like I know for me, um, if I'm working on a new project, I would always want to add rules for psychomatic complexity and max parameters, just because I feel like those kind of lead you into the pit of success. <laughs> so I'm kind of curious um, if you have any favorites. And I'd be curious. Please tabs versus spaces. <laughs> I'd, I'd be curious the panels as well. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, just to touch briefly on indentation, you know, whether you like four spaces or whether you uh, are completely wild and like tabs, I do think that the <laughs> indent rule is very helpful just for wiping out, like eliminating that discussion from your team uh, whatsoever. Like, you know what, have your editor set up however you want. Um, but on my pre-commit hook, we're going to run ES Lint and everything's going to end up the way that it's supposed to be before it gets into source control. Like you, you can eliminate a lot of tension on a team with that. Um, but in terms of my favorite rules, um, uh, I tend to lean towards the ones that have saved me the most. So uh, the no, um, no unused VARs has been very helpful to me. Like I do have this tendency to create a lot of variables and then refactor and then forget about variables that I created uh, earlier on. So no unused VARs is, um, has been really helpful just to me personally. I should have thrown that one. I'm (laughs) probably going to, another one. Um, and I'm probably, gonna mess up the name because you know there are a few hundred rules and I can't remember them all specifically uh, is I think it's called uh, no unexpected new line uh, and the the goal of the rule is to tell you when uh, the JavaScript engine is going to insert a semicolon for you so uh, automatic semicolon insertion, uh, is still something that, you know, even me, I think I've been writing JavaScript for close to 20 years, I still can mess that up. Um, and that rule, and it, it's probably not exactly that, but uh, no unexpected new line and no unexpected multi-line, that sounds like that might be more correct. Um, and, and that was something uh, that we added in order to help with uh, standard JS because there was really no check. Um, you know, we had the, the semi-rule, which would let you know if you needed a semicolon or not, uh, but we didn't really have anything that could warn when JavaScript was going to automatically be inserting um, a semicolon for you. So that, that actually helped me out, even though I use semicolons, um, that's helped me find some errors as well. So that's one of my favorite ones. and. I think rounding out my top three is probably prefer const because before that, I really didn't realize how frequently I was setting variables just once and then never changing their value again. Um, That was surprising to me. And using ESLint was what made me realize that I could use const way more than I was. Um, So those are my top three most useful uh, But I also have one that makes me giggle a lot, and I really appreciate that. Uh, And that's the the Yoda rule, or I think it might be no Yoda, (laughs) uh, where that prevents you from putting the the constant value first uh, using an equality operator. So there was a, a point in time where people were saying, well, you know, in order to make sure that you don't use the single equal sign uh, instead of the double equal sign, um, where you know you would end up doing an assignment instead of a comparison, you should always put the constant value first. So instead of saying uh, color is not equal to red, you would say red is not equal to color, uh, and that sounds kind of like how Yoda talks in the Star Wars series. Um, and so that Yoda rule is something that still just makes me smile to this day. Right, it is not. 
very popular in the WordPress community, <laughs> the Yoda comparisons. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. PHP, this is not. Oh, God, please no. <laughs> sorry, sorry. They, they drive me nuts. La- I'm not a language hater. It's not my favorite. If that's your favorite, then I think that's great. So, Nicholas, uh, what is your take on running fix? Because I've had mixed feelings about that as uh, potentially a default. Uh, and I say that because, again, if we're talking about ESLint as at least partially an education tool, uh, fix can uh, eliminate an opportunity for educating people uh, in some minor ways, although it is certainly handy in all sorts of ways where the minutia of, oh, I forgot a semicolon. Well, just fix it for me. Thank you very much, ESLint. That's nice. Um, but do you feel that it makes sense to run fix uh, more or less automatically as, as part of your application's uh, ESLint config? I think that it depends. Um, the original idea behind fix was really more of doing a one-time at the start, just fix everything that ESLint can find wrong in my code base because I really don't want to go through it by hand. Uh, and it kind of morphed into uh, more of a tool that um, people are using all the time. Uh, and I, too, have mixed feelings about that. Like, I always felt like the greatest value that you get from running Fix is always when you first uh, install ESLint in your project or when you first enable a new rule. Yeah, I think in those situations, you get so much value out of running fix uh, that you should make sure that that happens all the time. Uh, I think that when people started getting really aggressive with their code styles, that kind of started us down this path of people using fix just by default. You know, uh, I know a lot of people enable it in their editors now. Um, and to be honest, at the beginning, I only ever thought that ESLint would be used either in a pre-commit hook or as part of a build system. And so as part of a pre-commit hook, it could be helpful to automatically fix things. Um, and then as part of a build system, you obviously wouldn't want to automatically fix things because there's no way to get that artifact. And uh, in case anybody listening is wondering, uh, why doesn't ESLint just automatically fix all the time? Well, it's for that reason, is there are some parts of your system where uh, you can't do anything with the fixed artifact. And what you really need is just a notification that there was something wrong, uh, like deep in your CI system. Um, but I, I'm still, uh, I still don't have fix enabled in my editor. Uh, I would much rather see the problems that it's finding and then decide if I want to fix or not. Um, but I think this really can come down to uh, a team decision on, you know, do you want to run fix at the point that the developer is writing the code? Do you want to run fix pre-commit? Do you want to run it uh, as part of a build, um, you know, as you're bundling up your assets locally first. Um, it really seems like more of a personal preference. And as I, I'm still a bit on the fence about it. Um, 
even though I'm leaning more towards not doing fix while I'm coding, doing it pre-commit as my default way of developing. So do you happen to run uh, Prettier as well? I do not. You do not? Okay. Because I thought it was interesting too how Prettier has crept in on some of this space. Yeah, and I I don't have anything against Prettier. I'm just a big believer in dog fooding uh, what you're working on. Um, and I think that Prettier occupies a very interesting space where, you know, ES Lint's mantra has always been, you know, configure whatever you want. If there isn't something in there, add it yourself. Um, and Prettier is kind of at the opposite end of that, of like, hey, look, we'll give you a few options, but uh, that's pretty much all we're going to give you. And you either like that and you can live with it, um, and there's definitely a school of thought that appreciates that. And I, in fact, appreciate that approach um, because now that we're in, I don't know what year, five, six, seven of ES Lynch development, um, needing to provide an option for everybody's preference for every little style uh, has really kind of been eye-opening. Because I, at the beginning, I thought there's probably about five styles that everybody cares about. Uh, but in reality, there are hundreds that people care about. Um, and part of the advice I gave to Prettier early on when they were trying to figure out, you know, should we respect ES Lint configurations or not, uh, was not to, uh, because they would end up in a maintenance hole that they would never get out of, just trying to constantly keep up with you know, all the new flags and options that ES Lint was adding. Um, and so I, I am completely on board with people who think that they want to use prettier for formatting their code, uh, and they want to use ESLint just to check for potential errors or, uh, best practices related to frameworks and libraries, or even just best practices on their teams and custom rules that their teams create. Uh, I think that can make a lot of sense. Uh, and that's also part of why we provide the ESLint recommended uh, rule configuration so that if you do decide to use Prettier or something else uh, to format your code, there still is an easy uh, ESLint configuration to start with where you can get a lot of value as well. Good stuff. Thanks. So what's next for ESLint and what's next for, for you? Um, well, uh, to be honest, I'm not quite sure what's next for ESLint. Um, I haven't been involved in actively maintaining ESLint for the past couple of years. I do pop in occasionally to help out if there are questions that people want feedback on or if they're just having a hard time making a decision. But in general, the direction of ESLint has been Let's keep adding rules that help people adopt new language features. Uh, let's keep adding rules that help people avoid language hazards. Um, and let's keep making sure that uh, ESLint is pluggable enough that uh, wherever the JavaScript community goes, uh, ESLint is there to support them. Um, doesn't mean that there won't be uh, other changes coming in the future. Uh, But at least for the time being, um, there's really, I think, a a kind of virtuous cycle uh, between the yearly ECMAScript releases, um, tools like Babel, introducing um, parsers for new syntax, and then tools like ESLint, uh, introducing rules to help people adopt and use those new features better. For myself and what's going on in the future, uh, I haven't been involved in ESLint because I've been uh, focusing on my health. Um, A few years ago, I was diagnosed with Lyme disease, and that uh, that was serious enough that I had to stop working. Uh, And that also meant uh, stopping contributing to ESLint and other open source projects. Uh, And... That's also why I wasn't able to 
joined you guys a couple of years ago when you wanted to talk about ESLint. Fortunately, just by my presence here, hopefully it's obvious that I'm doing a bit better and I could potentially still be a couple of years away from you know, getting back to rejoining the workforce full-time and getting back to writing books and blog posts and stuff like that. Uh, but the trajectory is definitely upward and um, just wanted to use this opportunity to stress the importance to everybody listening of really just taking care of yourself. Uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff that we do as software developers, and it's fun to uh, you know get wrapped up in new technologies and new ways of doing things and fight about our favorite coding styles and you know, work on night and weekend projects. Um, but ultimately, if uh, you don't have your health, uh, none of that is really going to matter. And there's a few things I'd really like to just encourage everybody to do um, to take care of themselves better because the software does tend to be a very high stress industry, even if we don't realize it. And that can take a toll on your body um, because uh, a lot of people are unaware, but um, when your body is under stress, your immune system actually just shuts down. And you know, that's part of the fight or flight response to help you get away from danger. And that's supposed to be a temporary state. Uh, but for a lot of us, we're working too much. Um, I myself was doing this, you know, I'd work my regular job and then I would come home and write books and be working on uh, open source stuff and just really never had an off switch. And that's probably why I got as sick as I did. My immunity was just too suppressed from all of that. Um, so I'd like to encourage everybody to just really think about the amount of time that you are spending uh, being driven and trying to achieve things and try to balance that out more uh, with relaxing and spending time with your friends and family. You know, take the vacation time that you have because whether you think you need it or you don't, you actually do. If you're feeling sick, please stay home and take care of yourself. Try to avoid working from home when you're sick. Just take the time, relax, uh, do what you have to do to feel better. Try to get a hobby outside of tech to really just let your tech mind rest a little bit. I know some devs who are just tremendously artistic, great musicians, great artists, uh, and they've actually shown in studies that uh, when you take time to sort of turn off your analytic brain um, and focus more on your artistic side, uh, it actually helps your analytic brain a lot, um, both by decompressing and just creating more pathways in your brain uh, so that when you come back to the more technical stuff, you actually have new ways of thinking that help you be better at your job. Uh, and please save your money because one of the things that I learned through this whole ordeal is that uh, you might think that the disability insurance your company has for you will be there, um, but it might not. There's a lot that you have to go through in order to prove that uh, you are quote unquote disabled enough to collect that. It actually took me over two years uh, in order to begin collecting. So um, I just am hoping that everybody can learn from what I've been through and uh, hopefully take better care of themselves so that uh, you can avoid the situation I ended up in where um, you know, Lyme disease is spread by uh, tick bites. So there was really not much I could do to avoid that. Um, but if I had taken better care of myself while I was working, chances are I wouldn't have gotten as run down as I got. That is so good. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And I know that we've had uh, conversations, you know, over the last little while, um, you know, just about how you're doing and, and what's going on and things like that. And, you know, just it, it's encouraging to me that, you know, even after, you know, everything that you've kind of suffered through with this disease, that you're, you're still trying to come back. You're still, you know, taking the steps to take care of yourself and move forward. And 
I think a lot of times we take things for granted and we just assume that everything's going to keep going the way that we want it to. And yeah, so I, I really love the idea of A, taking care of yourself and then B, being ready in case something just goes sideways because you can't always count on everything being the way that you think it always will be. And so I really appreciate the advice there. Yeah, absolutely. And it really was, uh, a lot of people are unaware of this, but um, what happened to me was, you know, I, I left work uh, one Friday afternoon and, um, you know, had a pretty normal weekend and my, my health had been on the decline but I really was better at taking care of myself at that point. Um, and I rested all weekend, but then Monday I woke up and I just couldn't get out of bed. And uh, that basically started um, this whole period where I basically just stopped leaving the house completely. And that's how quickly things can change for you. So um, definitely I, I really harp on people a lot now to save their money because uh, if I didn't have savings and I had to go two years without any income whatsoever, there would be a very different tenor to my story. Um, so I definitely want to encourage everybody to just, you know, if you can hold off on getting that latest iPhone for a few months and stick that money in a savings account, uh, you might find that to be very helpful in the future. Yep. Absolutely. Well, on that note, I think we probably ought to head over to Picks. Um, but before we do that, um, where do people find you on online, Nicholas? So I just changed my domain name. Uh, you can now find my blog at humanwhocodes.com. It's a little bit easier for people to get than my old domain name. And you can find me on Twitter. Uh, my username is slicknet. S-L-I-C-K-N-E-T. And I, I know that you're, you're talking about your recovery, but is there anything that people can do to help you in the meantime? Um, before you answer, though, I just want to uh, plug one of the things that you can probably do is go buy Nicholas's books and you won't regret it. They're terrific books. Um, I'm going to put a link in here to Amazon and his author profile so you can find his books. But is there anything else that we can do to you know, help you out while you're uh, getting through this and kind of coming back to you know, full whatever it is that you want to wind up at? Yeah, absolutely. Um, buying books is always helpful for a number of reasons. Um, uh, I would say that if you can spend some time contributing to ES Lint, that's also a very big help. There's a great team of people who are maintaining that project right now. Um, and they're doing it in their free time and they are you know, constantly just under a deluge of issues and pull requests uh, and everything that comes with maintaining a popular open source project. Um, and you know, they don't get uh, a lot of attention. You know, they, they're all just, I mean, when I say great people, I don't just mean, oh, they're really good developers. I mean, they are great people. They are incredibly welcoming. They're very supportive of each other, of me, of the community in general. Um, they love helping out new contributors. Um, and they're all just trying to squeeze in helping the project uh, in between their full-time jobs. So anything you can do to help them uh, would really help me because uh, I want to make sure that, that those folks are as healthy and happy and productive uh, as they possibly can be. And if for me personally, honestly, I love when people tweet at me and just say hi. I love hearing about how uh, my books or my talks or whatever helped them. I love hearing other people's stories about uh, challenges that they've overcome. Uh, I've really been grateful to hear from other people who've been dealing with chronic illnesses themselves um, and how they've been dealing and how they've uh, held strong. And uh, if, if you are feeling uh, charitable in a monetary sense, um, I do want to stress that 
I don't want you to send me money. Uh, I'm doing fine financially. But if you want to donate to something, uh, there's a wonderful foundation called the Lime Light Foundation. Uh, and they give money to children with Lyme disease who cannot afford treatment. Uh, it's a wonderful organization uh, based close to where I am uh, out here in California. There's a lot of really wonderful people uh, and supportive people who uh, are running that organization, people who have been touched by Lyme disease themselves and have come out the other side. Uh, and it's really just a tremendous organization um, and one that, that uh, I would encourage everybody to support uh, if you're so inclined. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you coming on and talking to us. And yeah, just uh, some people aren't comfortable talking about their situation, especially when it's not ideal. And so I appreciate you just coming on and, and making us think about this a little bit. Absolutely. Let's go ahead and do some picks. Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers. Or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course and ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks to two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or are looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. Uh, Amy, do you have some picks for us? So my first pick is something that I saw... I'm in a developer advocacy channel or, or like a Facebook group. And somebody posted this that came out from Stripe called the developer coefficient. And basically it talks about, um, it, it, I would encourage everybody to take a look at this PDF, but I'm not sure where exactly they got these numbers from, but they do outline a bunch of different numbers and it's, um, pretty much how much time they suspect that developers are spending on tech debt every week. And so if you have, they said like the average developer spends about 41 hours a week total. And of that, uh, 3.5 of those hours are spent on technical debt and 3.8 are spent on quote unquote, whatever they're calling um, bad code. So I think this is great, not just for developers. So we're aware, and I don't know if anything for me, it made me feel like um, kind of I was justified in feeling bogged down in technical debt. Um, anyway, so I would encourage tons of people to read this and share it. If you have an open relationship with kind of the executives at your company at a higher level, I would encourage you to share it with them as well. Because sometimes if they're not touching code, it's hard for them to understand Anyways, but on to my next pick, and I'll kind of expand on what I was saying earlier. So um, when I first started programming, this was like every, way before I ever went to a boot camp, um, somebody handed me a book on JavaScript. I didn't even know HTML or CSS yet, and I got pretty overwhelmed. Um, but the next book I bought was uh, Professional JavaScript for Web Developers, which is one of your books. And it literally is the book that made me realize that I, I, that I could do programming. So I was feeling very overwhelmed, like I didn't know if this uh, programming thing was for me. And potentially part of it is I'm one of those people who really likes to deep dive into things. And I think kind of understanding um, prototypes and how those worked in JavaScript was really tripping me up as a newbie. And your explanation of it in your book just really made things click for me and made me feel like I could keep going. So kind of if you're not super comfortable with that in JavaScript, I love Kyle Simpson, but I also really, really, really love this book and would recommend people go out and buy it and check it out if you haven't already. And that is it for me. Awesome. Bye guys. Sorry, I got to run. <laughs> yeah, it's life. Yep. Bye. Bye. See you guys later. Uh, Chris, what are your picks? I have, uh, I have three this week. Uh, the first is um, from my buddy Hayden Pickering. Um, this uh, site he put together inclusive components. Um, this really cool, it's kind of like this blog slash design pattern thing, um, but it's basically a collection of um, common design patterns and components that you typically see on websites. 
And he deep dives into more robust and accessible ways to approach those things. So um, things like accordions, tab navigation, tooltips, a um, whole bunch of other stuff. He's also got a book based on the site that's going to get updated pretty regularly. Um, but as someone who cares a lot about accessibility and things like that, um, but also sometimes struggles really bad with it, which is, I think is the case for a lot of developers. Um, it was just a really awesome resource. Um, it's something that I pay a lot of attention to and still screw up all the time. And so there's just a lot of really great stuff um, on his site uh, that everybody should dig into. Um, the second one for me, um, uh, as some of your listeners are probably already aware, there's uh, <laughs> at the time that this comes out, it'll probably have been about a month ago, but there was this big kerfuffle over a, um, a tweet from uh, Max Stroiber around how well people knew CSS. and um, Just a lot of uh, confusion around things like uh, the cascade and, um, and uh, CSS um, classes and how different things inherit. So I just really, and a lot of folks arguing that it's the kind of thing that we don't need to worry about because we can just offload it to tooling. So I just really wanted to give a shout out to the CSS cascade today. Um, I think it's something that a lot of JavaScript developers don't pay a lot of attention to or don't spend a lot of time thinking about or focusing on. Um, and I, I've just found the, the more I've focused on learning CSS really well, the better my JavaScript has gotten as well. Because a lot of things that I would rely on JS for, I discover I can actually just handle with CSS in an easier or more performant way. Um, so if you haven't taken time to look at all the cool stuff CSS can do these days, um, go take a look. And, uh, and then finally, I just wanted to mention for folks, I am... Um, I write a whole bunch of um, guides, video courses, um, and other sorts of resources to help folks learn um, JavaScript, and in particular, vanilla JavaScript better. Um, if you listen to this podcast and you want to save money on any of that stuff, um, you can use the code JSJabber at checkout to get 30% off. So that's it for me this week. Awesome. Corey, what are your picks? Uh, so I have three picks as well. Uh, my first pick uh, feels very relevant since we're talking about ESLint. One of my favorite ESLint rules is no sh no restricted imports, uh, which allows you to specify some uh, libraries or any imports that people shouldn't import in. So if, for instance, you have some libraries that you uh, have decided as a team shouldn't be pulled into your uh, package or into your project. For instance, you've decided you shouldn't need jQuery since you're working in React, or you shouldn't need Lodash since you have Babel and modern JavaScript, so you should have most of the uh, functionality that you need without that. Uh, this can be really useful for uh, warning people about usage of tools that uh, you've decided you shouldn't need. And you can even customize the messages there. I've also found it useful for deprecating internal components, for saying, all right, for a while we were using this component. Now we suggest using this instead. And I can put in the message, hey, this is deprecated. Go out here. Here's a new URL with more information. So really useful for, for deprecating tools as well. Uh, a book I just recently finished reading um, was Arnold Schwarzenegger's autobiography, which is called Total Recall. Fascinating book. It is unbelievable that one person could <laughs> do so many different things uh, and both inspiring and also very cautionary. I mean, it's, it's uh, highly revealing um, all, all the costs, the trade-offs that come from the level of fame and success that he had there. So I, I like books that really delve into both sides of that issue. Um, Finally, uh, on the JS front, uh, I don't know when this goes live, but stateofjs.com is the uh, annual state of JavaScript survey. So I'd encourage anybody listening to go out to stateofjs.com and uh, fill out the survey so we can find out what good stuff's going on in the JavaScript communities. Uh, that is it for me. Awesome. Yeah, this episode goes out uh, the end of October. So hopefully state of JS is still running. Um, yeah, and we, I think we usually wind up talking about it every year. So definitely go fill it in. It's always great just to see the direction that things are heading. Um, Joe, do you have some picks for us? Oh, sure. Um, speaking of the state of JS, can I uh, pick Thought Bubbles? <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> I'm going to pick. That's a joke. It was a joke. Thought Bubbles. I was making poking subtle fun at the state of JS um, survey. Dang, Joe, right. that was too subtle. I've got to go. Was, <laughs> was too subtle. Echo chambers? Or picking up echo chambers. How about that? There we go. Nice. Okay, picking nice. echo chambers uh, <laughs> in relationship to the State of JS survey. Um, okay, I got two picks for you. The first one is a really interesting article that some guy named Jack Scott, who really hasn't blogged too much, put out on Hacker Noon. And it's raised like, I don't know, he has like 140 followers on Medium and he's got like, I don't know, 
10,000 claps or something on this article. So it just went crazy. 3,000 claps at the time that I'm looking at it right now. Anyway, the article is called Goodbye Redux. And he lays out this very interesting and well-thought-out case for why there's another technology out that, and he, when he says Redux, really what he means is all flux uh, patterns, uh, regardless of which framework you might be using. But uh, he lays out this really interesting case why there's another technology that might reduce, if not eliminate, the need for Redux patterns in our front-end uh, framework programming or front-end programming in general. Chris, you ever hear of anybody using uh, Redux with vanilla JS? I have not, actually. That would be interesting. Uh, or any flex pattern, really. Um, so I think it's a really great read. It's a short read, like 10 minutes long. I put a link to the show notes, but if you just Google goodbye Redux, you will find it that way as well. So very interesting read and a lot of interesting comments on the article as well. And then my second pick is going to be a YouTube channel called Sideways. It's this crazy, awesome, but fantastically great channel focused on music about, it's got a bunch of really interesting videos. Like one is a deep dive into Ray's theme from Star Wars. And another one is on how movies use music to make us cry and the answer of how they do that will surprise you and uh so there's a, a one is how to win an argument about pop music and he lays out this really interesting history of pop music and culture and generation gaps and explains a lot of really interesting things I, I found the channel fascinating and had to uh finally cut myself off to get some work done this morning after wanting to watch far too many of the videos so if you have any interest at all in music and some of the behind-the-scenes stuff about music, which I assume is going to include a large percentage of people, you should definitely check out, check out this channel, the Sideways channel. And again, I'll have a link to it in the show notes. And those are my picks. Awesome. I've got a couple of picks I'm going to throw out there. Uh, the first one is, um, if you've been listening to my JavaScript story, which is another show that I host and I interview people who uh, to just to get their story uh, on how they got into JavaScript and what they're working on these days, um, I kind of started to feel like I wasn't getting the whole story because I want, I want the My JavaScript Story podcast to represent people out there in the community. And so I opened it up. I sent an email out to my email list and I got a bunch of people who are listeners to the show but have not been on the show to come on the show and talk or on that show and talk about you know, themselves and their journey and things like that. And I'm really looking forward to those to start to come out. Um, but if you are interested in being on my JavaScript story, or if you do Angular and you want to be on my Angular story, um, you know, uh, join the mailing list for one. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes as to how you can get on, uh, you know, get on the calendar for that. Um, but yeah, I've I've really really um, just gotten a lot out of talking to people. Uh, one of the people I talked to was this uh, Portuguese guy who's living in Sweden, <laughs> you know, and writing Vue JS. Um, talked to another developer who just graduated from Hack Reactor in New York. Um, and so, you know, I'm getting these uh, variations on people's experience and, and hearing some things that are fairly typical, I guess, and some things that aren't. And so, um, anyway, I've, I've really been enjoying having those conversations. So if you want to have that conversation, I will publish it. But uh, I, I find that the more I can share people's experience, the, the better we can help the community and just get a real feel for where people are at and where they're coming from. So anyway, um, I guess I'm just going to pick that. And uh, yeah. Uh, Nicholas, do you have some picks for us? I do. Uh, I have three. The first is a book called The Brain That Changes Itself by Norman Doidge. And it's really fascinating. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but I was always taught growing up that you're born with a certain number of brain cells uh, and you only ever lose them as you get older. And hence all of our parents telling us that you know, if we drink too much in our teenage years, we're just killing off brain cells that haven't even had a chance to do anything. Um, but it turns out that that's not true. And the brain is constantly growing and changing. Um, and as a result, it's capable of some pretty incredible recoveries. Uh, and so this book talks about brain neuroplasticity and uh, goes through a bunch of medical cases, but also makes the case that to keep your brain functioning 
as well as it can, we really need a variety of experiences and uh, in order to create the new neurons. And uh, part of this has actually helped me regain some of the uh, cognitive ability that I really had lost in the past couple of years. That's very interesting. The second pick uh, is also a book. It's called Ghost Boy, and it's by Martin Pistorius. And it's the story written by Martin himself uh, of how he came out of locked-in syndrome. So he was unable to move, uh, unable to communicate, um, and how he was able to recover uh, and not only that, the, the part that I really enjoyed about this book was how he focused on assistive technologies and how they really helped in his recovery uh, and being able to let people know that he was actually in his body conscious, even though he was unable to move. Um, it's just really moving really inspiring, uh, and really highlights for me uh, just how important it is to make sure that we're all paying attention to uh, making the technology we work on as accessible as possible. And the last pick is actually more of a tip, um, but uh, for whatever reason, people seem to be having more trouble sleeping than usual. Um, and I don't mean like in the past day, but I mean, you know, our generation, uh, a lot of people you talk to say they have trouble sleeping. Um, and this tip is very simple. It's just uh, turn off your Wi-Fi before you go to bed. And, you know, you can turn it back on when you wake up in the morning. But there seems to be some research showing that the radio waves from Wi-Fi um, kind of keep your body in an alert state, uh, and that can prevent you from sleeping as deeply and comfortably uh, as you can. And uh, I've tried this. I've noticed a difference. I've recommended it to some other people who've noticed a difference. Um, you know, if you're living in an apartment, it's probably not going to help that much because your neighbors all have Wi-Fi. Uh, but if you live in a house, definitely give it a try. Um, because sleep is super important. And if you can do any little thing to make it better, uh, why not do it? Sounds good. Well, thanks again for coming, Nicholas. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great to catch up again. All right, folks. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up and we will be back next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.